most employment laws apply to all employers. So the moment you hire that first employee, there's, you know, kind of a whole list of things to consider. Less stress, more time, more money. Welcome to the Cash Flow Contractor interview. Martin, we had some some wonderful weather in Oklahoma this week. Would you agree? Yes. <laughs> I agree. 70 degrees yesterday. And this is January. January. Incredible. It's always nice. But then you get winds like this morning where it's 25 from the north. Right. You lose 30 degrees. It's not fun. Um, <laughs> two yeah. weeks ago, the week, two days before Christmas, uh, we were heading out to Boise, yeah. Idaho for a Christmas vacation. Left standing in my driveway at 3.30 in the morning. It was 39 degrees and balmy. It was humid. I didn't even have a sweater on. Uh, by the time I was seven miles north, it was 24 degrees and there was a 20 mile an hour wind. By the time I got to the airport, which is 21 miles away, it was 14 degrees. Um, so yeah, we had a front go through. Man, things change fast and I think as a segue for us, right. uh, things change fast as a business owner. And one day you're running by yourself, then you've got an employee, then you may have 10, 50, and you have no idea what you're doing. That's what we've brought on as a part of our right. advisor mentor series, Molly Aspen of Practice Law Firm. Molly, how are you? Great, thank you. Yeah, uh, didn't, I didn't know the, how we would segue from weather to labor <laughs> law. But we made the we made the transition. Well I'm done. actually in Florida right now with the <laughs> waves behind me in the background. So <laughs> well, enjoying that the works. little bit warmer weather. Hence, hence the sign that says "Ride the Wave," huh? <laughs> How, uh, what part of Florida are you in right now? Um, seaside area, 30A. Oh yeah, nice. I always we go to Blue Mountain Beach, uh, which is right around Close. there yep. every July, which is not a great time to be there. Yeah, a little busier frankly, at that but. time. It's it's really yeah, nice busy now and hot. And, you just have kind of the winter people down here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well, um, yeah, Mar Martin, why don't you tell us a little bit of how you met Molly and uh, how she's helped some of your your clients? Well, I met Molly. Uh, we did a workshop in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which I think you live in Tulsa, correct? I do, yes. And uh, she did a great job talking to a group of contractors, uh, talked for about two hours, and could have talked for 22 hours. Uh, no end of the questions and the topics that came up. Uh, to give you a case in point of why this applies to the mentor and advisor and mentor series, uh, I have a client right now who's working with Molly and I met with her last week. She has a difficult problem with an employee that she wants to terminate in another state and didn't know how to go about it, was angst-ridden, trying to think how to do it. She just calls Molly Molly says, you need to do this, you need to do this. I will have you a, a paper, a letter, email on Friday that'll tell you what to say and do, and then we'll go this long and, and termination will be problem. My palpable relief because my client just quit worrying about it, uh, got back to work and said, I have my marching orders. And if this employee were to do something, which I doubt he will, I have an attorney who's already um, understands what's going on that you call up and say, Hey, this happened. What do I have to do now? Right? So 
just the relief of that burden of trying to do things like write your own HR manual, understand how to do uh, terminations, interviews, hiring people correctly, business owner, you're not going to be very good at that. And uh, what I hear a lot are people who say, well, I have a, an HR manual. My husband or my, <laughs> or my wife got it from where they used to work at Ford Motor Company, and we're just copying it and adapting it. And that might not be the best best way to go. So anyway, that's that's the premise for this whole thing. That's how I met Molly. She's uh, done a great job with the people I've introduced her to. Well, Martin, I see why there were so many questions because I have so many questions because I have no idea really even what labor law is. Molly, what is labor law for ever everyone out there, and how did you get into it? Oh. Well, what is labor law? There's the, that's a big question. So I'll start. I'll switch the back end of it and start with how okay. I got into it. Um, when I graduated law school, I knew I wanted to do something where I worked with clients on a regular basis. And, and I have a, a business background. I like the business side of law, and so I like working with businesses to kind of help them achieve their goals. Which, it, it, you know, obviously you want to be in compliance, but a lot of times business goals and legal goals may not always mesh up. So I like, you know, working with clients to kind of find that middle ground where they're taking on, you know, an appropriate level of risk for their um, comfort level with decisions related to their employees, um, which can be a whole plethora of matters. Um, for example, the story that Martin was talking about, um, obviously without saying, you know, a whole lot of specifics um, and disclosing any, you know, confidential privileged information, you know, that's a smaller client that has just a couple employees. I mean, I think three or four employees and then, you know, some other people that do work with them, but it's a very small company where I don't think, you know, having a employment attorney kind of on call was on a you know priority list because they were really just kind of venturing into that managing employees area. Um, most employment laws apply to all employers. So the moment you hire that first employee, there's, you know, kind of a whole list of things to consider. It can be overwhelming to some people. Um, I, I tell you, it's really not though, once you look into it, it's very manageable, but that's what I do a lot of times as I work with companies, you know, as they, you know, a lot of times not when they're getting that first employer too, just because they have a whole host of other matters they're looking at then. But, you know, once they start growing a little bit, you know, I'll get a call saying, okay, we realize there's a whole area there that we need to make sure we're addressing and handling uh, appropriately. And so, I'll, I'll start with businesses a lot of times at that point to get them, you know, here's what we need. Here are some things to think about so that as they grow, they have that basic, you know, platform in place to make sure that they're growing in an appropriate way in order to kind of, in order to comply with employment laws, but also to, you know, get the most productivity out of their employees um, moving forward, because that's obviously what they're the most um, interested in. And then conversely, I have clients with, you know, tens of thousands of employees that have you know, whole HR departments, but not necessarily, you know, when legal matters come up, employment law is a very gray area. And so I spend a lot of time all day long on the phone talking clients through particular situations. And, you know, look, like you say, looking at the risks, it's not, here's the definite plan. You won't have any problems if we follow this plan, but it is getting a plan in place so that if, it does turn into, you know, at the far end litigation, they're prepared to defend those cases. Gotcha. And so you're mainly on that side that's helping the businesses rather than helping the employees. Yes. 
Yes, exclusively. I've, I've only represented businesses in employment law matters for 20 years. Yeah. And the first part of my practice, I was very heavily involved in litigation where that was pretty much what I was doing was going to court, defending wrongful termination claims, um, defending, you know, wage and hour audits, uh, you know, whole, you know, working with companies on anti-union strategies. Um, again, when you ask what is employment law, there it, it's basically anything dealing with <laughs> your employees <laughs> that, that comes into play. So, I mean, contracts, agreements, obviously wrongful termination is the most, you know, what most people think of, but it really is everything encompassing, yeah. you know, employees. And so the first part of my practice, I focused on, you know, defending them in court. And, and then that now allows me to when I'm advising clients on matters, which is what I primarily do now is trying to keep my clients out of litigation so that they don't end up in court. Um, but using kind of what judges and juries um, look at and kind of different factors, different tests, um, different strategies to make sure that we have what we need. So if it does end up in litigation and um, we have the best chance of success. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a lot of different issues out there uh, I know I have several questions that come from even the, just the contractor side, uh, and there's way more just beyond that. But Martin, I know that there's some key issues that you see for clients that come up maybe first time that they need to look into some labor, uh, look into working with a labor law attorney like Molly. What are some of those first issues that you see, Martin? The kinds of things that I hear about people, people talk about are one, um, at will state. And what does that mean? It, uh, on the surface to a layman, it appears to uh, mean that I can fire anybody for any reason. And I've, I've learned enough now to know that's not entirely true. Uh, things like having 1099 contractors because it's easier and not using when they're truly employees, W-2 employees. Um, the idea, which is pretty simple, I think, but a lot of people aren't aware of it, of um, exempt and non-exempt employees. Uh, exempt employees, in my understanding, are eligible to receive salaries as opposed to hourly wages. Uh, so there are some rules about that. Not everybody can uh, is appropriately salaried as opposed to hourly. Um, kind of the thing about uh, the importance of an employee handbook and what elements, this may be a bit much for one podcast, but what elements should be in there. Uh, then the last thing, well, it won't be the last thing, but some of the consequences for getting it wrong. Um, it's not just okay sometimes. Uh, I, I have a couple of articles called Surprise on my website and they're about things that happened and the consequences for somebody that said, of course I can. And then they found out, oh no, I can't. And it cost them in certain circumstances, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I have a client right now who is looking at potentially a million dollars worth of uh, penalties for not, they have a large number of employees and they haven't necessarily been doing it right. So some of the consequences, so that were, those were specific issues at will, exempt, non-exempt, 1099W2, the importance of a handbook, and then maybe some of the consequences. It's worth it to hire a professional to help you. Well, let's start there, Molly. That's one of the, the main questions that I had for a contractor as well as that 1099W2 conversation. Okay. What qualifies as an independent contractor? What doesn't? What needs to be employed? What are the repercussions if you're not doing that correctly? Okay, good question and very timely. Um, this is something we hear a whole lot about right now. Um, uh, 
new rule was issued with the Department of Labor last fall, I think October, maybe somewhere in that time frame. Um, I, I say new rule, it's not necessarily a new rule. And I, and I say that because it essentially rolls back some um, guidance that came in place during the Trump administration and, and takes it back to what it was um, previous to that time. So the 1099 employee issue is something that can vary drastically depending on the political climate and the current political landscape. Um, and it's, not, it's something now that while there was a big push for enforcement of it, you know, five, 10 years ago, it hasn't been enforced as much. There haven't been the people on the ground really going in and auditing businesses to look at it. Whereas now, I think the trend is that that's definitely picking up again. Um, when you talk employee versus independent contractor, there's a whole lot of different tests for that. Typically, it comes down to a multitude of factors, but the particular test depends on the particular situation you're looking at it for. Um, for example, the IRS has one definition of employment contractor and, you know, a list of factors they look at when they're looking at to, to make sure that they have employers, you know, properly withholding taxes on their employees. Um, the Department of Labor, you know, has a different test for independent contractor. Um, similar, but, you know, they're looking at they're looking at it a little bit differently in determining the, or whether or not someone is an employee or an independent contractor and is entitled to receive, you know, a minimum wage and certain overtime obligations. Um, the National Labor Relations Board has a different test. Um, courts use different tests in looking at liability under different employment laws, um, and, and that can vary based on the jurisdiction you're in. So the first question you're looking at is really, why am I looking into this and what particular analysis am I using? I say that because there's no, here are the 45 factors you look at in determining independent contractor, because there may be in one situation, but they may vary a little bit in another situation. Um, once you look at those factors, you then have to look at you know, how that agency has interpreted those um, factors in the past. That sounds really complicated, but to pull it kind of up out of the weeds, it's really not that difficult because when you talk, to, when I speak with a client, for example, I'm asking them questions, you know, is this an individual, are they working for you 40 hours a week? They've been on your, you know, you've been paying them as a contractor 40 hours a week for the last two years. Um, they don't work for anybody else. If you're looking at that situation, red flag, you know, there's a decent chance that individual's an employee. It's usually not that clear cut. It's usually, you know, someone's performing work for 20 hours a week, but they are advertising to other individuals but they don't or other clients but they don't necessarily have any other clients they're performing performing work exclusively for you then you're looking at the level and degree of control that you as the employer have over that individual um you want to have as little control as possible but yet i mean you're you're hiring that person to do a job so you need to make sure they're doing a job they're doing it within the confines of your organization and this is how we operate this is what i need from you um but you, so there obviously is some level of control but you want to make sure that you're not entirely controlling the way they do their work you're not controlling when they do their work if they want to do their work at you know one in the morning they can do their work at one in the morning instead of one in the afternoon that's up to the you know they have the full control over that if they want to you know do work you know at home if they want to do work at a different location um, they're using their own equipment typically. Um, you know, there may be a little bit you provide them, but you're looking at factors like that, like how much control am I providing? 
Am I providing you the materials? Am I providing you the equipment? Typically with an independent contractor, there's not a lot of reimbursed expenses because what you're paying the independent contractor, they're using, they're taking their expenses out of that, you know, their home internet, their computer, their marketing, you know, whatever they do, they're taking out of the rate that you pay, that you pay them. And so you don't a lot of times see, I guess, a reimbursed expenses for independent contractors that you may see for employees. Um, so it's an analysis of looking at that sort of factor, those sort of things and determining if someone has, if you really are controlling someone to where they're essentially displacing an employee of yours, then there's a good chance they'll be determined to be an, to be an employee instead of an independent contractor. And, and what are the repercussions if you get that wrong? I think that's the important thing for people to know. It depends on where you're looking at. I mean, again, for the Department of Labor, they're looking at overtime. So if somebody's working 60 hours a week, you know, you could go back three years and they'd be entitled to overtime wow. pay for 20 hours a week for three years and then double that amount and give them some attorney's fees on top of it. So, I mean, that can obviously get pretty substantial. Um, minimum wage um, comes into play where with independent contractors, they're typically not tracking hours. So that it makes it difficult with the Department of Labor because since they're not tracking hours, they're all of a sudden, you know, working from sunup till sundown when they talk to an investigator or, or you know, now have a claim against you that they're being paid improperly. Yeah. And it's really hard as an employer to argue against. I mean, it's your word versus theirs. Um, and you don't really know when they're working because they're probably not working on site for you as a contractor. Yeah. And with the IRS, you're looking at responsibility for you know withholding taxes that were not withheld which you're withholding them from the individual but if it's because you misclassified them misclassified them incorrectly then it falls on the employer because it's the employer's obligation to withhold those taxes yeah and that's the that's a huge one because that can really rack up quick um absolutely yeah, for sure and, and then just the employment laws because a lot of times when you're you know you're looking at handling matters with an independent contractor it, you know in your mind you're thinking, oh, they're an independent contractor. I don't need to worry about this or that because they're not really an employee of mine. And, and then if they're determined to be an employee, now you've handled something differently than you would um, if they're classified incorrectly. Yeah. I think uh, Martin mentioned employee handbook earlier, and I think that's a good place to kind of take this next because we can go through all of these different laws and acts that have gone into place over the years. Uh, everything from OSHA to ADA to FMLA, all those kinds of things. But I think your employee handbook, you can tell me the, the purpose of it and why it's so important, but I would say it's probably so you're covering all of those bases at some point to your employees and it's out there and you have a policy on it and all those kinds of things, right? It, absolutely. Um, it, you're right, Khalil. When I get a call to defend an employer, one of the first things I'm doing is I'm asking for you know the individual's personnel file and I'm asking for a copy of your employee handbook. Um, and presumably that employee handbook, you know, has a non-discrimination statement in it. If it's a wrongful termination claim based on discrimination, you know, presumably they have a harassment policy. Um, harassment policy is incredibly important because there are certain defenses to harassment claims that are available to employers only if certain information is included in the employee handbook, um, such as a reporting complaint reporting mechanism procedure for employees to use. Um, so that's incredibly important and not required by law, 
but required if you want to take advantage of some of those defenses and harassment claims. Um, you do have a few policies that are required by law. Um, for example, the Family Medical Leave Act requires certain information be, include, be provided to employees. And if you have an employee handbook, that it be included in the employee handbook. So there, and then there are several different state laws that, that states may have, and even in a few instances, some localities in you know, San Francisco, New York, and some bigger, uh, bigger jurisdictions where different information is required to be included in employee handbooks as well. So there's the required information and then the recommended information. And again, that's the recommended information a lot of times is what I'm using to defend employment claims. That's the language in employee handbooks that frankly, I don't think most employees look at very closely. Um, you know, a lot of times it may be kind of included in the back. That's fine. I don't care where it is in the employee handbook. I mean, I don't want it, you know, hidden in there somewhere. You have a you know, 80 page document and this, you know, covers page 38 or something like that. But um, it, it typically, you know, I'd, but most employer, most employees really are only concerned about, in my opinion, their leave policy. You know, what are my benefits? What's my leave? <laughs> and so with an employee handbook, that's really what you're providing to them. But you do want to be sure to have other policies such as, you know, I'll report asking employees or require, requiring employees to report any injury immediately. Um, letting employees know that they may be, you know, monitored if you have, you know, cameras or subject to search if in certain instances. Um, drug and alcohol programs um, are typically a big piece in employee handbooks, um, especially with medical marijuana, recreational marijuana, and all of that changing, you know, state by state and changing on a regular basis. So those are a few of the things that you want in there that employees may or may not be, you know, too interested in. Um, weapons, some companies, you know, you, you don't want employees with weapons. Other companies may want employees with weapons. Um, they have a weapon on them. What state are you in? Do they have a weapon in their, you know, vehicle in the parking lot? Um, so there's there's a lot of questions that come up. And typically when I work with employers to, and again, this is kind of the smaller employer that's just, you know, getting their footing, they're starting to get more employees. I get the call of, I want to make sure I have everything in place that I need. Where am I going with this? I, I typically start with kind of a initial meeting slash consultation with the client. And a lot of times that initial meeting is what I hear back from clients is the most beneficial because we're asking, you know, I'm asking these questions and we're going through all of these different items. And a lot of times as a business owner, you're busy making sure your client's happy and the, you know, ours <laughs> being paid. You're not thinking proactively about a lot of these, you know, kind of what I say employment issues or, you know, ancillary employment issues. And so getting kind of that premise in place, knowing, oh, if this comes up, I need to think about this or, I may need to call to check up on and make sure it's okay to do it this way. You know, just being aware of some of these issues out there is probably the most important part of the process for a lot of um, smaller business owners. Yeah. I mean, the, the way that you've described that, I think for, for most companies that are listeners that own a company probably don't have something that robust in place. And even just thinking about it might, sure. it, their brain might explode, but uh, what what is the approach for that kind of owner? They've got five employees. Yeah, they have an employee contract in place. They've got something on sick leave and pay in their contract, yep. but they don't really have a formal handbook that's covering all the items that you listed out from 
workplace harassment to, you know, any of the other policies that you mentioned, what's the best approach? Is it it's not to just go hire a labor law attorney tomorrow and pay for all of those things by the end of the week because you're probably not going to be able to afford it or it's going to be a shock. What is the yeah. best way to approach it? Well, a lot of, and you're right, it is a process. And I would caution against that. I don't, it, it's not as expensive as people sometimes think it is. Um, and like I say, my, my, my suggestion would be get started in that process. Like I say, I, a lot of times meeting with them, that initial meeting is sparking all sorts of things. And then it, it goes on from there to where it's not like it's, I need an employee handbook. You know, let me call Molly and I'm going to send an employee handbook over to you tomorrow. Um, it, you know, that's not how the, pro it's a lengthier process. It can, it, it can fall out over time. And so, I mean, I work with clients regularly and understand when they're getting to that point, the cash flow is an issue. And so we can make sure that we have, you know, here's what we need now. A, a lot of times we'll develop a plan of, you know, here's kind of the most important couple things you need. And then we'll look at this, you know, six months down the road or a year down the road or kind of get in place. Um, so that you have a plan to make sure you have all of those items in place when we get there. I, I will say we talked about employee handbooks. What, one of the things probably with newer clients that is almost even before an employee handbook would be a confidentiality agreement. Um, a lot of times non-solicitation, potentially some non-compete, um, you know, protection of, protection of intellectual property. Um, a, a lot of times those are big concerns of clients that they either they know about or are not necessarily on their radar. Would you uh, explain the difference between a non-solicitation and a non-compete? Because it's there's quite a little difference there, correct? They're not the same thing. There is, and correct. I, I kind of put everything under a restrictive covenant umbrella. So in my mind, when I say restrictive covenants, I'm encompassing confidentiality agreements, non-solicitation agreements of clients, non-solicitation agreements of employees, non-compete agreements, protection of intellectual property. You know, I'm, I'm including all of that kind of under the term restrictive covenant, but you're absolutely right, Martin. Those are all very, very specific terms that have very different purposes. In, in Oklahoma, a lot of times, I'm not sure where a, a lot of your listeners are, but in Oklahoma, I'll hear people constantly say, you know, non-competes aren't, aren't enforceable, so we can't have that. That's true. There is a statute in Oklahoma that you know says well, that the courts are not to enforce traditional non-compete agreements um, because it prohibits employees from engaging in their you know engaging in their work. A non-compete agreement is saying you can't leave my company and go work for a competitor to me. Um, so a lot of times, because you know that employee is trained to do the job for you, and so. The courts in Oklahoma, at least, say you can't prohibit them from going and doing that job for a competitor. Most of the time, though, what clients are really seeking is not a non-compete. It's actually a non-solicit where I'm OK if they go work for a competitor. I mean, I'm not going to be happy. I've invested in them and trained them, but I'm not prohibiting them from going to work for a competitor. But I need to prohibit them from taking information that they've learned from me. So the confidentiality piece, but then the big part, the non-solicit. So. I don't want them to go work for a competitor and start calling up all their clients they deal with and try to get the you know my clients to go to the competitor instead of working with me. You can prohibit that with a non-solicitation agreement. Um, similarly, I don't want them to go work across the street for my competitor and call up all their you know the friend their friends and their you know good employees that I have that I've invested in 
have them go work for the competitor, say, hey, they're paying us a dollar more over here, come work over here. And so you can prohibit your employees from doing that as well. This is typically a separate document. An employee handbook probably will have a confidentiality provision in it, but the employee handbook is by name for employees. And you know, obviously there are confidentiality obligations as well as other fiduciary duties when they're employees, but this document encompasses not just during employment, but post-employment as well, which is really when you're concerned about those confidentiality obligations and, and non-solicitation obligations. Um, as well, depending on the industry, if they're you know developing certain process, if they're developing any sort of protected intellectual property for you, then uh, obviously most most companies where you have employees who are developing intellectual property are fairly savvy, and that's you know their main concern when they get started is how do I protect this? You know, I'm paying this employee to develop this information. I need to make sure this information is the company's information, not the employee's. But there may be you know intellectual property your employees are doing that you're not fully aware of. And so it's helpful to at least have some of that language in that, you know, confidentiality non-solicitation agreement as well. So I, I know I kind of took your quite took a different angle to your question, but like I say, really the first call is not just let me develop an employee handbook, but it's let's get a plan in place so that we have what we need as a company in order to kind of grow our employee base and make sure that we're doing so in a responsible manner. Yeah. I, I think there's so many contractors out there that don't have a contract in place for their employees or non-confidentiality agreement. Um, and it's, it's like, Oh, I need that. You know, I know I just hire them. I pay them. I, you know, uh, but it, it definitely gets a lot deeper than that. Well, I was wondering, uh, we kind of in the weeds and, very important specific stuff with the non-competes and non-solicits. On a more general basis, uh, at will, uh, I know Oklahoma is an at will state. And if you just talk to people, they say what I said earlier, I can fire anybody for any reason. So the heck with them. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. A another very common misconception out there. Um, all 50 states um, subscribe to the principle of at will employment. First of all, I typically have someone call me up and say, well, I can fire anybody with right to work state. It's not right to work. It is employment at will. But those two terms, even though they're not the same, are used interchangeably a lot. Um, but employment will is the correct term. The idea being an employee is employed at your will, can be let go at any time, don't have to provide any notice, don't have to provide any reason or any cause. Um, general rule, general rule all across the United States. Um, the exception exception to employment at will is federal a, a lot of federal and state laws such as Title VII being the most common. I won't discriminate on the basis of race, gender, um, national origin, religion. You also have you know the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, whole plethora of other similar federal laws and state laws, and again a lot of times lo local laws as well that prohibit termination for certain reasons um, or retaliation for certain reasons. Those are all exceptions to employment at will to where if, if someone is let go, they may claim I was let go because I'm over 40. Well, that's a protected class under the Age Discrimination and Employment Act. So you may be able to fire them for any reason, but you can't fire them because they're over 40 um, because you're discriminating against them on the basis of their age. So those are all exceptions to employment at will. Um, 
going back though, to even get to employment at will, the idea is that there's no employment contract. And so a lot of times there's confusion because if someone has an employment contract, they may say, well, I'm not not well employee. I have a contract with you. An employment contract that take that is not employment at will is an employment contract for a specified term um, for a period of time. So a lot of times it's with your higher level, your you know C-suite level executive employees, um, you know employees you may recruit that have a particular you know talent. They may be provided an employment agreement that says, I have you know I will work for this is a one year term or it's an automatic renewal or a three year term. And, and, you know, a lot of times there's a severance provision in there or something because someone came from another company and so they want some guarantees. You're not going to fire them next week or you're not going to sell the company and they're out of job in a year. And so you have employment agreements for a specified term. If you have an employment agreement for a specified term, that individual is not an at will employee because that individual is a contract employee under that employment agreement. What you see a lot of times now, though, is employment agreements that companies will have with individuals or with its employees that say in the agreement, this does not alter the at-will employment relationship. So that's the reason that that language is important, because if the employees have a contract for a period of term or for a term or a particular period of time, they're not considered at-will employees. So you want to make sure that you're not putting anything out there to your employees that make them think they have guaranteed employment for a period of time. So that can come in the form of, you know, this is your, you'll be paid this much per year, you know, in the offer let all see, you know, you'll be paid this much per year. Well, no, you're not paid that much per year. You know, you're paid on a biweekly basis <laughs> at, at this amount that may total this at the end of the year, but you want to make sure that you're not putting anything in your communications to employees that make them believe they have some guarantee or expectation of employment for a specified period of time. Because if they do, if there is, then they're a contract, they're an employee. And I say contract employee, not independent contractor, but they're an actual employee of you by contract and at, at will employment doesn't come into play at all. That is just a perfect subtlety where you need competent people advising you. <laughs> but it also brought to mind something that's happening with one of my, well, two of my clients. In this day and age, a lot of times people are offering signing bonuses to come work for me. Yeah. And if, mm -hmm. if you, say, you say, hey, I want you to come work for me, I'll give you 5,000 bucks. Can you recover that if they don't? How would you handle that? And specifically, if they leave in six months and the deal was for a year, can you recover it? Legally, potentially, yes. Will you actually see any of that money back? Probably no. Um, and I say yes, but that's with certain mechanisms in place. A, a, a lot of times the signing bonus will be paid. And where I thought you were going with the question was this amount at commencement of employment, you know, when you come over and then we'll pay you this amount after six months, this amount after a year. Um, and again, you just want to make sure that that language is structured so that it doesn't guarantee or the employee doesn't have some guarantee they will be, you know, employed on that date in the future. Um, deductions from payroll is a separate issue that you brought up. Um, taking deductions from payroll is, is governed typically by state Department of Labor's, and so it varies state by state. Um, for instance, in Oklahoma, you need a separate written payroll deduction agreement signed by both the employer and the employee. Um, I, I try to get as specific as possible, but 
I would still use a form at the commencement of employee or commencement of employment for individuals if you may have some payroll deduction issues that come up. You know, you're looking at retail, you know, cash shortages at the cash register, um, anyone with uniforms where they're required to, re you know, have some costs for uniforms, things like that. If if you have some of the if they're using tools, if you have some of those common scenarios where an issue may come up where you want to deduct from someone's payroll at some point. I would have an agreement that they sign with you know their onboarding documents when they're hired but i would also have separate agreements that they sign if you're able to do so for example i have you know clients that want to give a loan or an advance a payroll advance or something like that to employees you want to make sure you have something separate signed in order to make be able to make that deduction um the deduction you also you can never take someone's pay below minimum wage so even if you have everything in place and you are able to deduct um, appropriately under you know your state laws, you still can never deduct to where an individual is not receiving at least the minimum wage, um, the federal minimum wage for um, the time that they work during a particular time period. And usually when you're looking at deductions from pay, you're looking at someone left. You know you're looking at a last paycheck. Um, issue. So that's why I say you may be able to put in the contract that they're obligated to pay it back. Um, you see that with, you know, tuition reimbursement or, you know, clients that have a significant expense to onboard um, employees, you know, as far as certification or trainings and things like that. You'll see agreements of that sort that say, you know, the employee is obligated to, you know, pay this back. But like I say, actually collecting that money back from an employee after they're gone is, very unlikely. If you have the employment agreement, if you have those agreements in place, you can seek it against the employee, but a judgment is just a piece of paper. Um, a judgment is not money in your pocket. Yeah. And if they're a former employee, which usually, they usually are, you know, seeing any of that money back typically is yeah, not Yeah, it's really difficult. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you is about some examples of, you know, clients that have you know, if they would have had the employee handbook, they would have been in a much better place. If they would have had the confidentiality, confident, caught up, gosh, confidentiality agreement uh, in place, then we would have uh, we wouldn't have had to deal with this litigation or this issue. What are some of those examples that you see in the small business world? Well, the non-solicitation or the confidentiality piece. I mean, employees have an obligation of confidentiality um, with their employers, but there's no kind of post-employment obligation that employees don't solicit clients. So, you know, a lot of times when I get the call from a new client, it's it's already too late. You know, employee left, they went across the street or working for a competitor. They're, you know, sending letters to all of your clients. You know, what can we do? This employee's been with us. They didn't even know these clients. We introduced them, you know, we introduced this employee to these clients when they worked with us. Now they're trying to steal them away. Unless you have a, an agreement in place, you really don't have any recourse against that employee or any ability to seek any recourse against that employee because they're not doing anything illegal. I mean, nothing says they can't call those clients unless you have an agreement in place that prohibits them from doing so. Um, so, so that's one of the kind of easy areas to show that of, you know, at that point when you're calling me, it's, it's too late. I mean, we can get something put in place for, you know, current employees and new employees but if it's not already there, there's no way for you to go, you know, do anything to try to prevent that um, former employee from calling your clients or your employees, whatever the case may be. Something you just said uh, prompted me. Can you change the rules 
in other words, you have people who signed these documents when they first came on, and now you're putting in a non-compete, non, well, not non-compete, non-solicit, and they've been here two years. Can you ask them to sign that um, and expect them to do that? Good question. Um, in Oklahoma, yes, you can. You're looking at, again, because this is governed by state law, um, there are some variations to that. But essentially, in order to have them sign that agreement, you as the business owner, as the employer, have to provide something to that individual as well. In Oklahoma, you're providing them continued employment. They're continuing to work for you, and that's considered sufficient consideration for asking them to sign a non-solicitation agreement that imposes kind of new obligations, so to speak, upon your current employees. Um, a, a lot of states, that's the issue. There are a few states that require something additional. Um, I think it's fine to roll it out if you're doing, you know, if you typically do cost of living increase or, you know, normal raises or salary adjustments across the board in January, roll it out at that time. You know, if, if there is something new you're rolling out, put it in conjunction with that. Um, it's additional consideration. So even though continued employment is sufficient consideration in Oklahoma, it just bolsters the case and adds even more. Um, also, it's probably going to be better received by your employees um, who've been there that have said, oh, now I have to sign this. I've never had to do anything like this before, especially in, in, especially in kind of your sales or industries that have, you know, more of a sales client component to them. Yeah. Um, they may be hesitant. So if you have benefits, roll, you know, new, something new you're rolling out, roll it out in conjunction with that. But otherwise, in Oklahoma, at least you're able to roll it out at any time with your current employees. And if they refuse to sign it, then that can be reasons for you letting them go. Yeah. If it's something that's incredibly important. Is a job description that people sign, is that a, uh, do you consider that a contract? And one real common thing I hear from small business owners is I don't want to give them a job description because now they're going to say, that's not my job. <laughs> how, how would you handle right. that? I know other duties as required when requested, but uh, so two questions. Yeah, is that that's what contract? I was going to say is you handle it with the, that's exactly how you handle it though, is with those other duties as required as requested. And, and yes, you're absolutely right. Um, you were listening earlier. <laughs> you, you do want to make sure that that doesn't establish a contract. So typically you'll have some language on that as well. Um, if it's something that employees are required to acknowledge or to sign the job description. So I still think it's advisable. I get clients a lot of times, like you say, it may change, especially with a, you know, smaller, a newer business where you're kind of figuring out who's doing what roles and who sits in what seat. It's still helpful to have, particularly if there's any sort of, um, I would absolutely have it if there's any sort of physical component to the work. So if there, you know, it's any sort of manufacturing, anything where there's physical requirements, um, a job description is absolutely necessary. If there's not physical requirements, I still think it's incredibly helpful to have um, for dis disability analysis or medical analysis. And you may not go into detail on this right now, but just there are certain things that should be in a job description, right? A well-written one might have purpose and the name of yes. the job and the duties, but there are also those have to pick up 75 pounds and work yeah, at night. Physical requirements. Things like that. Mm -hmm. So there are requirements for a good job description. Um, yes, those physical requirements and then also 
and that comes into play again this is a whole a whole separate podcast series probably and talking about employees dealing or employers working with employees that have medical issues because if employees have any sort of and i say medical very broad um it covers a lot of things there but that's a lot of times where i spend a good part of my day on the phone with clients is managing employees that have different issues that arise um, be it you know physical or mental disabilities and showing that they're able to do their job is key in those discussions and doing that if you have a job description it's easy to show what their job is if you don't have that then it looks like you may be oh now you're saying i have to do this i've never done this before you know joe that works next to me has never had to do this now you're telling me i need to or i didn't know that was part of my job when i hired when i was hired i thought i could do this or this was my impression so having a written job description one prevents that confusion and provides some clarity to employees um, about what the expectations are of the job and, and then two is very useful in determining um, and kind of working with that employee in any sort of um, medical related inquiries or um, discussions related to any physical or mental disabilities i've got a few hypothetical things that will happen at some point in some company's life but just from a uh, you know small yeah. business labor law perspective you know we're seeing potentially recession for 2023 if depending on who you talk to uh, and depending on what industry you're in how do you handle you know obviously you see these layoffs that are happening at huge tech companies and they have entire teams of labor attorneys on their you know on their companies but if you did have to do a mass layoff for your company and let go of half of your people how is it different for the small business owner? What's feasible for them and what are they actually required to do in those circumstances? Sure, well, for the small business owner, there are not a whole lot of legal affirmative requirements. And I say that because the WARN Act applies to certain employers. And so if employers have above a certain number of employees or are closing a you know plant that's a large part of their business and has a certain number of employees, there's different thresholds for the WARN Act to apply. Then employers are obligated to provide notice to the employees that this may be happening, as well as to, you know, state and city officials usually uh, of impending layoffs. That's of a larger stage. So the layoffs you're reading about in the news, those right. are all subject to WARN Act requirements as well. Most small businesses don't have WARN Act requirements. So then you're just looking at one, do I have any contract requirements? Um, do I have employees that have severance provisions in employment contracts they have? Do I have, I mean, sometimes I'll see handbooks that have severance provisions in them, which should not be a thing, but it, I mean, they're out there. And so do I have anything in my employee handbook that obligates me to provide any sort of severance? Um, then is there a reason to provide severance? A lot of times if it's a riff or a layoff, not of the employees, you know, doing where the company's having, you know, the numbers aren't there and they don't have the financial resources. And so a layoff is, and usually I've worked with them up to that point to try to do other things. Um, to get them in place before you actually get to the layoff and um, you know, early retirement incentive programs, things like that. But if it is to a point where we now have to lay off individuals, you just want to make sure you do so in a legal and by that, it basically mean non-discriminatory manner. So, you know, you're not laying off your three oldest employees um, or your three females, your three minority, you know, the person that had a workers comp claim last year and three other people <laughs> in a different department, you know, you want to make sure that there's, um, that it's applied consistently. You're looking at, you know, a lot of times years of service, um, 
pay the job, the particular departments um, and the organization of the company. So you're looking through, the, you know, you just need to be cognizant and work through those issues. Um, depending on the size, I see a lot of spreadsheets of here's our current employees with, you know, their age, their gender, their, you know, kind of going through your protected categories. And then, you know, here's our proposed, you know, individuals to lay off. Now here's what our new, you know, average looks like in all those categories and make sure that there's not a whole lot of variance uh, among those categories. Um, again, depending on size, that's probably not necessary if you're looking at, you know, 15, 20 individuals or less. But, you know, beyond that, I think it's helpful to have that sort of analysis to make sure there's no, um, you know, unintentional um, discrimination that's occurring yeah. as well. Um, and that's where you get a lot of issues where there, there really may not be intentional discrimination, but then when you actually look at the numbers, it makes it really hard to defend if the numbers don't support yeah. that. Another, you mentioned minority there, and that's a, that's a big question that I have is for, you know, companies, especially contractors in Oklahoma, primarily too, the majority of the workforce tends to be migrants, whether they're legal or illegal. How do you navigate that as a business owner? Or do you still need to have, do the same laws apply for illegal immigrants here working for you? Um, how does that work? Very good question. A lot of them do. Okay. Yes. Um, not all of the laws, a few of the employment laws only provide protection to you know, legal U.S. and U.S. employees, but a lot of them apply to um, illegals as well. Similarly, I get a lot of questions now with, you know, the trend toward a more remote workforce of I've got an employee that wants to, you know, move to Mexico. It's cheap. I mean, there's a whole plethora of people. It's cheap to live down there. I can keep working for you, doing the same thing I'm doing now work remotely, you know, my salary in Mexico, I'm, you know, top 1% easy. And so there's also a trend of employees wanting to work, you know, elsewhere. And the, you asked about U.S. employment laws applying to people working in the United States. A lot of U.S. employment laws also apply if you work outside of the United States, if you're working for a U.S. company, but you may also have employment laws in that jurisdiction. So for example, Mexican employment laws or Israeli employment law, you know, every country has its own set of employment protections for employ for employees that some vary drastically from what we have in the United States. And so if you do have employees in those scenarios, you need to make sure before kind of permitting them to do so that you're making sure you're complying with employment laws in those jurisdictions as well. And, and that even comes up with I, I talk about the more extreme example, you know, your employees moving out of the United States, but even if you have employees that are working for you that want to, you know, go work in Florida over the winter, there's different laws in Florida that may apply. So you need to make sure that you're complying with all of those laws as well and have someone just to at least kind of make sure here's what you need to think about. Yeah, man, that gets really sticky. Really, really sticky. Yeah, multi-jurisdictional employers, employers that have employees in multiple different states and multiple different countries is a whole, like I say, a whole plethora of other issues. Uh, something you said a little earlier reminded me, uh, a lot of times when people are laying people off, they have no severance package, but they feel bad. Mm -hmm. And so I'm gonna give you a mm -hmm. couple of thousand dollars. And one of my companies a long time ago, yeah. I was told, don't do that, you just established well, I want to give her, because she's a single mom, I want to give her $3,000. But old Bob over there, he can be working tomorrow. I'm not giving him anything. Can you 
talk a little bit? Do you set a precedent when you do that? Um, you can, and again, different scenarios. If you're looking at laying off, well, are you laying off one employee and you're saying it's a layoff when it's really just an employee you're trying to get rid of, <laughs> but you have some concern about getting rid of them. So, oh, I'm just going to lay off and not have that position anymore. Um, you know, that may come up. If you're looking at the one-off scenario, there can be times where paying a severance is very effective. If you're offering a severance, you want to make sure that it's that the employee is likely to accept the offer. Um, the reason in doing so is by providing them a severance, you also in doing so want to make sure that they're signing an agreement that's a release agreement that's releasing you as the company from any employment liability claims, which again, that's key. So don't just write them a check and presume that that's released. Um, that happens more than you would realize. You want to make sure they're signing an actual release agreement, releasing any claims um, that they're able to do. And it, it can set a precedent, but it can also be very useful if you are potentially concerned about claims out there to have some sort of guarantee of, okay, we've paid them this. And so the chance of having a successful claim is, you know, much, much, much less likely than it is otherwise. So there are times it can be effective if it's used properly. It can be overused. I've got some clients that just, you know, we want to do a severance agreement for everybody we let go. I, I wouldn't suggest that. I would, you know, unless there's an actual reason for doing so. Um, you do see them though, the scenario we were talking about earlier with your layoffs or your RIFs, where it's you know just business performance and we're reducing personnel, a lot of times the severance is a component of that. If the employees let go for no reason of their own, um, a lot of times the severance is provided. Um, similarly, if it's a business where employees are being let go because the business is being sold and the new you know the acquiring company doesn't want to maintain um, the full employee workforce, typically a severance is part of that you know process of the sale where employees are provided some sort of compensation because they're being let go with no fault of their own. But not required, but is pretty typical to see. Well, I think all of our listeners uh, learned at least one thing today, but I think the biggest takeaway for me, if I had to give one thing would be, hey, speak to an advisor in this, speak to Molly Aspen, speak to somebody else, but go get some some information from somebody on where you stand, particular to your situation, your amount of employees, type, types of employees you have, uh, what state you're in, all those kinds of things, where you're at. Um, if I had to end with just one question, I would be, you know, this stuff evolves constantly. I'm sure it evolves with each administration even. But where do you see the future of labor laws and regulations? How do you see those evolving in the next five, 10 years? Oh, goodness. Well, the next five years, I think more and more protection, it, it really is dependent upon administration in large part. And so um, I mean, when you have democratic administration, you have a lot more protections for employees, a, a lot more. I mean, for example, the Crown Act right now is being looked at and it's, you know, hair discrimination. Am I discriminate against somebody because they have dreadlocks or braids or, you know, because of their hair. And that's, you know, you'll have additional protections like that. Um, I think we will have some form of probably paid sick leave, paid medical leave, um, paternity leave, or you know, not just maternity leave, but full parental leave protections. I, I think there will be additional protections, and that's typically with Democratic administrations you see, and then with Republican administrations, you see a lot of that kind of being rolled back um, and providing the employees a, a little more um, 
uh, or I'm sorry, yes, providing the employers a little more ability to um, do things with their workforce that they may yeah. not be able to do otherwise. So it, when you say five or 10 years, it really depends a lot on that. But I do think probably paid sick, some sort of paid sick, paid medical component leave is probably on the horizon. Yeah. I would say 10 years down the okay. road. You know, you wouldn't know it by looking at me, Molly, but I had dreadlocks for about seven years down to my, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm way sure you've got here. some good stories yeah. too that I'm talking with players. <laughs> uh, discrimination is one way to look at it, but I think more than anything, it was just the, the stares of people like, who's this guy? Uh, I actually coached <laughs> soccer players at the time and I would constantly get stared at by parents like, do I want this guy coaching my parent, my player, my, my son? Right. So anyways, fun <laughs> times. Martin, for listeners, if it's been a little bit weird, Martin's on a little bit of a delay, so we're giving him some time. I, I would love to have a clip of him just raising his hand for about 20 seconds to talk. Um, and if I can keep him from not talking longer, I will. Now, uh, Martin, what do you want to finish this episode with? First, I want to uh, reiterate what you said. We've talked about a lot of subjects, 1099s, at will, non-solicit, job description. I hope that not that we didn't confuse you, but that we convinced you that you can't do this. I mean, I'm pretty adamant about that. You can't do it, not unless you got an HR degree and that's your business. So seek counsel. On the encouraging side, mm -hmm. there is, and I wanted to mention this because I didn't know about it, there is insurance available, uh, correct, Molly? For people who uh, have a For employment-related claims, yes. Right, so there is insurance out there in case you mess things up. Yeah. I know we didn't talk about employer, or I'm sorry, exempt, non-exempt kind of classification issues um, or kind of some of the consequences you see from this, and I don't, you're right, I don't want it to, it's not that overwhelming. I mean, when I discuss it with clients, it's very manageable because you're looking at their particular situation, but employment practices, liability insurance is generally a rider you can add on to your general liability insurance policy. Um, it's typically, from what I hear from clients, it's fairly affordable um, and worth it because if you do have an employment-related claim, like Martin said, the numbers can get really, really big, really, really quick. And so by having employment, liabil employment practices liability insurance coverage, it provides you at least some level of you know, assurance and guarantee um, with employment related claims. It typically does not apply to, I bring it up with the exempt, non-exempt because it does not typically cover wage and hour related claims um, because those are, you know, insurance companies don't want employees not providing not paying overtime because i'll just wait till i get sued and have the insurance company pick it up so typically um yes for wage and hour claims they're not included but i think for any sort of wrongful termination claims and kind of like what we've talked a lot about today epl i, I would absolutely recommend um talking to your agent about making sure you have epli coverage and my last thing and i'm putting it at the end Khalil can cut this out i'll clap and give him time but cost, okay, 15 to 20 employees, if they're going to engage counsel, are they talking about $50,000 to get this done, $5,000 to get this done, $10,000 over two years? Can you give us a range? And if you prefer not to, we'll just leave it out. But that's why they don't do it. They self-deselect. I will say not the, fi not, not the 50,000. 
um, much, much, much less than that. Um, there are some variables if you have employees and, you know, 50, to 50 employees, but they're all in different states, um, it's going to be more expensive than not, uh, um, than if you just have employees located in one state. Um, and, and it depends on the uh, other issues that arise out of, uh, out of getting everything set up. But like I say, typically I would say the five to $10,000 range, um, just big picture for kind of a general, you know, we operate one, maybe two states and have about, you know, 35, to 50 employees here. Um, I think that's very manageable. And again, it's usually kind of, it can be spread out over time and it's, it's looking at different things and kind of doing pieces a lot of times piecemeal. Well, just give Molly a call. Uh, we put show notes, uh, practice, uh, is it practice.com? What is your URL, Molly? Um, that's a good question. Practice.com, P-R-A-C-T-U-S, kind of like cactus, but practice yes. in the show notes. Uh, you can get in contact through there. Anywhere else people can get in contact with you, Molly? Um, by email or the phone numbers listed on my website. Those are really the best ways. I, I will say as a follow-up, don't let the cost prohibit you because I, I put those costs out there as kind of going through employment documents, making sure all that's in place. but. Once that's done, most of what I'm doing, like I say, is talking on the phone. And I have clients constantly tell me, you know, talking to me for 30 minutes or an hour before making employment decisions can save a lot on the back end. And so that's typically just kind of an hourly rate, but um, and you and very, very affordable um, for clients to do that kind of preventative talk. So we're talking about kind of employee handbooks, documents, things like, you know, full reviews, but if something comes up or if there's an issue, feel free to call because like I say, it's usually just a phone call. Yeah. Well, great. Well, we've really appreciated having you yes. on e email, email and phone is the best way to contact me. Terrific. Well, yeah, we've, we've really appreciate you having you on and thanks for your time and for answering all of our questions. Um, yeah, of course. Thank you for inviting Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Enjoy. Should we on the, on CFC Martin? I'll, uh, I'll hold up my peace sign for about 10 seconds to you so that you can see it. Just kidding. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Cashflow Contractor. Check out our website in the show notes or visit thecashflowcontractor.com.